for July 29th, 2019. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 578. Bounty Lawyer DGAF. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging out and making podcast magic. I'm Matt Rather, and I'm here behind the scenes of the Overthinking It podcast with Mark Lee and his stunt double, Pete Fenzel. Hey, Mark, can you say what a podcast stunt double does? It carries the discursive load. Oh, yeah. And Pete, is that about right? Carries his discourse. Sounds about right. <laughs> All right. We are we are here to uh, talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, I keep typing this into my uh, in into the show notes and things as Once Upon a Time in a, in the West. And I think we have to talk about Once Upon a Time in the West. I think we have to talk about Once Upon a Time. But we really, really have got to talk about Hollywood. What does it mean that this movie takes place in Hollywood. Uh, there's a story about Betty Davis and she's being interviewed and uh, the interviewer asks her, can you tell how, how can a young girl uh, get into Hollywood? And Betty Davis looks at the interviewer deadpan and says, take fountain. <laughs> now, Fountain is a street that runs parallel to Hollywood Boulevard, but is less traffic than Sunset or Hollywood Boulevard or Santa Monica Boulevard. Uh, it begins at La Cienega. So from the ocean, you can take the 10. Uh, Devin, La- what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> we're going to do another uh, map of Los Angeles type of podcast. It actually matters. I, I, love, I love that this is a movie that there's a plot point about where is Chatsworth. Uh, you know, near near to Al Saint Germain's beloved Reseda is is uh, the answer, guys. Pete, maybe first. What what do you think that it means that this movie takes place in Hollywood? That it's once upon a time in Hollywood. Tackle either of those uh, halves of the title, or else uh, both of them together. And, you know, as as you see fit. I think it's layered, right? I think it's it's deliberately ambiguous. I mean, they show you right up front that the protagonist is two different people who are doubles of each other. So we should be conversant in discussing this movie with the notion that uh, you know one thing can multi- can symbolize multiple different other things, or that an idea might a single expression of an idea might have multiple layers of signification to it. So one layer is the way you're talking about. I love to hear more about it, which is that this takes place geographically in the Los Angeles neighborhood of Hollywood in the Hollywood Hills, and this is a historical event that's being talked about and that's being revised that takes place in the neighborhood of Hollywood. But it also takes place in Hollywood, uh, broadly speaking, the movie industry, right? The, the area and the making of movies that that is taking place. And not only that, but it's also taking place in something you might refer to maybe as the golden age of Hollywood. I don't necessarily think of that as explicitly the 60s, but this takes place at a time that feels very Hollywood. Um, we're not we're, we're not at the point yet where people are shooting movies in Vancouver or New Zealand. Uh, we're not at the point yet where people in the United States are watching international movies all that much, except maybe sometimes French or Italian. You know, all of the movies are happening in Los Angeles for the most part, right? This is the, the silver screen, the glitz, the glamour. Hollywood in this time period is kind of full-throated and in its full power. Uh, and so it also is a movie that takes place within the ideas and within the storytelling conceits and within the structural or post-structural realities of Hollywood That's storytelling. Right, yeah. So it happens in Hollywood in the sense that the expectations of what you think the characters are going to do and what the characters, what's going to happen to the characters are based off of a whole epistemological map of meaning that is associated in a broad sense with Hollywood. Like when people say, for example, that, oh, when people made the cats, the people making the cats movie, Hollywood's gone crazy. The cats movie is British. It's, it's not Hollywood movie, right? Or like uh, Matt Damon in the great wall. That's crazy. Why would Hollywood do that? 
it's not Hollywood. It's a Chinese movie, right? Uh, but there's this notion of Hollywood discursively and movie storytelling, and this sort of it elides the idea of movies, but also sort of more broadly elides this whole idea of what it means to be a character in a movie, what our expectations are, and that this story takes place within that place. And a lot of what the movie is doing on a level of meaning is interacting with the expectations that are set up from it being in that place in an alienated way, in a self-referential way, uh, and, and also in a uh, in a fully embracing way at times where it really kind of digs into it and and. You know, this is this is these are the strings I have. This is the piece of wood I've got. I'm going to play that harp, well, right? We are, Pete, we are playing the Hollywood harp. So, Pete, like a quick follow up question: How does that make it different from every other Quentin Tarantino movie <laughs> that exists? Well, it probably doesn't. I, I guess it's, it's, it's different from Reservoir Dogs. It's less. Sort of. It's less violent, I guess. I mean, I, well, I mean. Not, not, I mean, the way that it makes it different is that it's it is later Tarantino, right? We are in the sort of later Tarantino period, pretty safely, where Tarantino's work is kind of moved through his classic phase into kind of his post classic phase, where a lot of his work is about sort of questioning the meaning of his own work, uh, where where he is so bound up in his own self referentiality that he can't just put John Travolta in a movie, right? Like he can't he can't just like put a movie star in a movie. It has to mean something. Uh, because he's done it before so many times and he's sort of dwelled on it so many times. So I would say that to go through the kind of Quentin Tarantino catalog, you know, like Jackie Brown feels very different from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yeah. even though Jackie Brown also takes place within the constraints and ideas of, of movies. Um, it just also seems in the same maybe, also yeah. in the same city. Right, right, right. Exactly. Same place, same, same, probably not even just a few years later. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, but but it doesn't necessarily feel as uh, self-referential on quite so many levels. So I guess it's more like this is a this is like a Carnegie Deli chopped chicken liver sandwich. You know, it's like it's like four inches thick and the bread can barely hold it together, uh, which I think for some people has been one of the main flaws of the story. But for me, is really one of its great features. But Mark, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I want to try to get in here and answer Matt's question about, yeah. like, uh, why is this movie different from all the Tarantino movies? Um, because we eat bitter herbs. We lean back. No, um, not at all. Because that's look for seeing Glorious Bastards for that. Um, it. it, it it said it's once upon a time in Hollywood and the Hollywood is important because of this. This might be obvious in a certain level, but it's worth just putting out there explicitly. Right. It's this whole meditation about violence in Hollywood using violence in Hollywood, in particular, right? The Manson murders of Sharon Tate, um, that being a real life event, which is, of course, very cleverly and brutally subverted in this. But it allows us you know, to use that as a as a jumping off point, well, we kind of reverse chronologically, but a jumping off point to think about all the violence we see on screen committed by, you know, uh, generated by quote unquote Hollywood and how that affects our broader culture. And, um, you know, thinking about, oh, this terrible act of, of, of violence, you know, happened inside of Hollywood. How did that, how did we get there? And how did we proceed from that point. So that to me is like the critical piece of, uh, of it being once upon a time in Hollywood. I would, I would build on that Mark. Oh, sorry. Um, real quick. So one thing I would build on in thinking about this is that it's, it's worth noting that of all the Tarantino movies, this is the one that takes place in a setting and a situation where you would least expect there to be actual violence. That, that this is a lot of Tarantino movies. There's this sort of uh, relationship between fictional violence and real life violence. And this idea that humanity is very violent is kind of very embedded in Quentin Tarantino's work. But these people aren't supposed to actually be violent. And it's right. taking a moment yeah. from their up, experience. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And it's t- and so in talking about the relationship between cinematic violence and real violence, which is tr- which is addressed in all of the movies, this is perhaps notable in being the least violent setting or so you would think. This this sort of the the expectation going into it is that the setting in which this movie happens is one that has a relatively low level of people suffering horrible dog food cans to the face, right? Like that's, or getting curb stomped on a mantelpiece. You would not expect that to happen in this place. Whereas pretty much any other of Quentin Tarantino's movies, that would be something that you would expect just by virtue of the location and time that the movie is being set in, right? I mean, the same also applies for the Manson murder itself, right? Why it was so shocking. Right, right. Extremely secluded and you know, well guarded Hollywood neighborhood. I don't know, Matt. Like, is there anything to say? Like, your local geographic knowledge about 
like uh, where the Manson murder murders were were committed, or like that type of Hollywood gated house um, that uh, gives either uh, an illusion or actual sense of security. I mean, it wasn't really it it, it wasn't really gated, right? Like, uh, um, there's a. It's um what uh Cielo Drive, right? Is the fa- is the famous street where where it happens. Now, to get to Cielo Drive, you can go into Beverly Hills. Uh you can either take Wilshire or Santa Monica or so- no, it's a uh, Stewart. What what you have to continue. <laughs> I'm not so going to th- stop you. One of these times I'm not going to be there to stop you, Matt. You're just going to keep going. <laughs> um you know, and it's a it's a like a private road, you know, but it's it's mostly it's mostly security by obscurity, right? Like the uh, the the kind of the Los Angeles Basin and the Valley are separated by some hills. The Santa Monica Mountains kind of peter out into the Hollywood Hills as they go east, and there are a lot of um, there are a lot of kind of winding streets up these you know improbably steep uh, hills into um, you know into kind of hillside houses that are set into these natural habitats, some of them quite quite palatial, some of them with magnific- magnificent commanding views of the uh, you know of the uh, the city below, which I think we saw from for a second from maybe when when Brad Pitt was on the roof fixing uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's TV antenna but the the um, you know like the the it it's mostly that it's kind of this this paradise retreat right not that it's um it this is not uh, a secure location the way the mansion in crazy rich asians is a secure location uh, guarded as it is by you know uh indian soldiers sure okay yeah yeah okay so um we we're talking about like the 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 character's capabilities for violence and like the um the possibilities that real life violence could actually break out in Hollywood which is all fake and things like that right and you know we briefly mentioned the stunt double so let's like kind of dig into that a little bit here because on one hand he's a stunt double and it's Hollywood and everything is supposed to be quote unquote fake on the other hand we are uh, given the notion in an incredible scene where you know he uh there he killed his wife supposedly accidentally right capable of violence beats up bruce lee again very capable of violence and then ultimately at the end while high on acid completely brutalizes uh the the mansion intruders right uh so like okay so the stunt double clip is he is this guy for real i mean is this violence for real his dog does most of the super heroics you know like his he is uh definitely not um, at that Bruce Lee level of totally being totally uh, uh, totally in command, right? Like he's not a he doesn't throw anyone into a car, and he ends up he ends up getting shot, doesn't he? He ends up going down. He gets or, stabbed. Yeah, yeah the stabbing. Th- I I don't know. There was a gunshot, and he fell over. I wasn't clear whether he got got shot or if it was just the the stab wound. But like, yeah, I mean the the you know so. <laughs> Like he's on a boat with like, you know, maybe surrounded by sharks or whatever. So, you know, Jaws, he was a soldier. He does a martial arts movie. I mean, it's funny that he's like, uh, you know, the character has all of these super cinematic um capacities for violence or kind of backdrops like opportunities for violence and yet you know the fact that he's actually used some of them uh makes makes Kurt Russell say man that guy freaks me out you know I don't like the vi- I don't like him I don't like the vibe uh that he brings on set I mean is he for real yeah he's too much for real and that's why he doesn't really fit into the that's why he doesn't fit into the thing like and like when he's you know with the the Manson family kind of flower child young girl uh, who you know is offering him sex in the car on on his drive out to Chatsworth you know he reads her in half a second right he's not sort of taken in by by he's not taken in by stories and he's he's also like uh the one who's at the beginning of the movie like seems to be telling telling it to rick like it is at least like you know i don't have much of a career as a stuntman anymore i'm your gopher like call you know call me by my right call me by my right name um and that's uh, except with with him you know with the leonardo dicaprio character where he's like you know hey man you're rick uh what's his name rick uh, Dalton, Dalton. Dal- Dalton, you're Rick Dalton, right? Like he's uh, 
uh, he definitely uh, inflates that ego um, a little bit. But but at least as far as I can remember, that's the only one. Yeah, it's interesting because there's a lot that's being said about America here in the doubles and the real violence and the fake violence and how you might think of the real violence in America as being or the fake violence in America being like the TV cowboy violence being a reflection of the real violence that happens in America or that has happened in the history of America to create a situation where a lot of people don't have to uh, experience violence. As they say in the movie, people are getting killed in Vietnam as opposed to people are being killed in Los Angeles, which is, uh, you know, not necessarily a sentence that never gets uttered. But the movie definitely sort of slips this aside a little bit, right? It's got this illusion to the his, the actual history of the Southwest, right? The the cowboy movies, the guy named Madrid in yeah. uh, the in the cowboy movie is big for that, right? Because that's calling back the role of the Spanish, and then there's Spanish people, Spanish speaking people around, and this idea that there's been war and there's been colonialization, right? And or and there's been all these different kind of layers of conflict that Brad Pitt fought in the war. Right. And that's one of the ways where he got so violent. Um, and that war, I mean, that war was probably Korea. Right. Right. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so I would say that there's a, a powerful symbol that ties it all together is Brandy, the dog. Right. Winner of the Palm Dog, as it were, uh, the Palm Dog sitting there restrained by the authority figure saying, no, sit, wait. Don't do anything. Behave yourself like Brad Pitt in the car who's not having sex with the girl because he doesn't want to go to jail, not because he thinks it's wrong. And watching this giant pile of food, right, like this giant pile of food just pile up and pile up and constraining himself. And the dog is just so, so repressed. Right. And it's so sort of frenzied sitting literally on the couch right in front of the TV, watching this giant pile of red meat build up. And then when the finger snaps or the happens, right, then the dog leaps into action. And there's the, I think there's something really powerful being said there about the idea of a Pax Americana being the product of the presence of overwhelming force. I think it's something and- about the duality of man, sir. <laughs> Sorry, just to take another another auteurish director and uh, his own statement on that. On that, yeah, of course, of and, and the idea that like people think, especially the whole Pearl Harbor narrative of you know America doesn't start fights, but it'll finish them. That kind of thing, right? Like you don't hit them first, but when they hit you, you make sure they never hit you the second time, right? Um, and, and this that whole mentality, which I I don't know if people even really talk like that anymore, but that was a big thing when I was a kid. Uh, and and this idea that like cowboy, the modeling of violence as used by white hat cowboys is, you know, don't start the fight, but finish it. Don't break the law, even if there's no police, you know, be the person who embodies the spirit of the rules, but also be a murderer. <laughs> and uh, and so it's funny when later on in the movie, the person in the the Banson family member in the back of the car in yet another fantasy of something that didn't happen, which we can get into in more detail, says these are the people who taught us to murder. Right. Like the idea that Americans learn to murder because they watch bounty law. Right. When, because they watch because they watch Leonardo DiCaprio with a cowboy hat on. That's what taught them to murder. It's not like America was founded on murder or anything. Right. Like it's not like America, especially California, is founded on multiple layers of murder, wherein one group of people came in and murdered everybody. And then another group of people came oh, in and murdered man, everybody. Yeah. Right. Like it's like you didn't America didn't learn about violence from bounty law. You just learned about America from bounty law. It's a, <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's it's true. It's murder all the way down or the sociopath who uh, is leading your cult, who is telling you to go in, who is, you know, dehumanizing people, calling them pigs like and telling you to go kill some pigs, you know? Yeah, everybody gets blamed for violence except for Charles Manson. Yeah. In this movie, which is <laughs> which is really telling, I think, because it's like, what about the person who actually doesn't? Or Roman frickin' Polanski doesn't get blamed for violence that happens in this movie, right? Despite the fact that he is, of course, you know, this horrible, horrible human being who has done these terrible things in his life. Uh, which of course the movie like very much expects you to know. I'd imagine this movie is probably frustrating if you don't know who Sharon Tate is, who Roman Polanski is, or why it would be funny to have John Wayne live next to them, <laughs> right? Like basically. 
or like sort of budget John Wayne, right? This idea that like, why would it be interesting or funny to have a, a, a symbol of American justice live uh, uh, alongside this kind of layered situation of depravity but it's like uh-huh. but just sorry sorry to, oh, to no, cut in it. but like a little a little deep dive into bounty law right it's not written law it's not god's law it's bounty law right he kills right. the leonardo dicaprio and, and uh, bounty hunter character uh kills because there are bounties on these wanted men dead or alive you know right and that's uh and he doesn't care who they are like well this town is called so-and-so and that's mr so-and-so's son and that's you know, like that, that he doesn't care, you know, he, you know, like a, a, a bounty hunter, Leonardo DiCaprio, DGAF, uh, as the kids, the kids say these days, right? Like, yeah, uh, which matches up with the idea that, that sorry, I missed, that was, that was a real missed opportunity that should have been bounty lawyer, DGAF, just because the cadence is the same as honey badger. But, but yeah, sorry, Pete. <laughs> Well, this is one of those movies that's so internally referential with itself that I feel like I'm going to be constantly jumping back and forth. By the way, spoilers for the whole movie. Uh, Back and forth, a little bit late. Back and forth through the entire movie, connecting the different parts of it that reference each other. So when Al Pacino is talking about how uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, Rick Dalton should go to Italy to make movies because if he goes to Italy, he gets to win fights and the fans want to see him win fights. And the fans, if, and how he even explains, if you stay here and you lose fights on TV, the audience on a certain level is seeing you, the actor, lose the fight to the other actor, continually blurring this notion of, well, what is real and what is performance? And the and the, the viewers in, uh engaging with content on a subconscious level where they're aware of multiple layers of meaning that are taking place. And and so this is all related to this idea of like, uh, you know, you, you, People are induced to fight by their circumstances, by the by the in, indelible realities of their circumstances, and the notion that the broader population is sort of above it, right, and is and is sort of like doesn't and sort of frowns upon the violence and thinks that the violence is wrong and and all of that stuff is is hogwash. Is one of the things that this movie is kind of taking as a precondition, which might be more of a commentary on the '60s than on sort of America in a universal sense, but does seem to ring somewhat true, right? Like you could make a version of this movie where it's like the marvel superheroes are trying to save what they try to they go into the the they go into the africa and they save they fight coney right or something like that like there's a similar i mean you know you would say they could do something like free children from a from an immigrant camp right and it's like oh it's iron man and iron man literally lands and frees the children and is this sort of like hollywood fantasy of what if our heroes were real and what if our heroes solved our problems as opposed to manifest our problems Right, like as opposed to like manifest our dreams about what we wish were the case, you know, or, or what the sort of yearnings that are in our in our soul, while at the same time reflecting the kind of uh, hungers that we have and the things that we are kind of putting into the culture ourselves, right? Yeah, we should possibly be really clear that when Rick Dalton flamethrower torches one of the killers in his pool in yep. the back, that is not positing that as a solution. Right. That <laughs> I mean, is like, it works, it works out pretty well for him. I mean, maybe. <laughs> well, I think, I think, uh, Matt, you, there was a particular two word phrase that you had used when we were leading into the podcast. Do you want to, do you want to, uh, raise it above the ground and open your hands so that it, it falls forward towards the earth, uh, and, and introduce it to all of us? Is that, is that the, the phrase wish fulfillment? Or, <laughs> no. Uh, oh, sorry. What, what, uh, <laughs> The, the pathetic drop. Oh, the the pathetic drop. Well, I mean, actually, the the pathetic drop happens in in the wish fulfillment section of this movie. But I I was actually thinking of like so the like taking that that last thing in the movie, the kind of the finally the you know it's like finally some violence. You know, I came to Tarantino movie. <laughs> I want to see an ear get cut off at least. You know, right. paid my paid my fourteen dollars. Um, this happens, and it's what what you realize, and I think Pete, you pointed this out in our chat before, uh, as as we were prepping this. That the uh, what what happens, you realize, is that we've saved the world from the Sharon Tate murder, right? From the Manson right. family, uh, oh, yeah, 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 Sharon Tate murder, right? And so this is this is like of a piece, and I think this makes the film a third. In a trilogy with Inglorious Bastards, where we kill Hitler. Oh, spoiler alert for you know the Tarantino oeuvre. Inglorious Bastards, where we kill Hitler, and Django Unchained, where we blow up the institution of slavery. You know, and that like, and and I just I wonder, I wonder 
about, I wonder about this. Like, is it, is horrible though they were like, and it is true what the, what the people, what the people in the car say that like Charlie's instructions were to make it look witchy or like make it make it as bad as possible and i think that that like crime scene was probably caused ptsd and everyone who had anything to do with it even tangentially right like it 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 was bad it were bad um but that like bad as it was is this is saving the world from from this really on par with saving the world from the Holocaust or from slavery, from no. American, you know, chattel slavery, right? No. Like, so yeah. let, let, me, let me let me get in here. I, um, I agree with you, Matt, that it, it is like the third in a trilogy with Inglorious Bastards and Django and Chain. So far. Um, trilogy so far. Yeah, so far. The um, next one could be about a parking ticket that was really unjust. You know what? <laughs> I, I got a parking ticket today. It said uh, it was parked on a Sunday morning. It said no parking until Sunday at midnight. Now, I ask you. Flamethrower, Matt. Like, take Sunday a flamethrower to court and solve the problem that way. <laughs> Sorry, um, Mark. Okay, so um, this um, – it's it's not the same kind of wish fulfillment revenge fantasy as those other two movies, um, because there's so much indictment of the system uh, that led to that flamethrower incident at the very end, and then also like the um, the, the long march up the Sharon Tate Polanski driveway at the end. Um, to the extent to which I would say like, okay, yeah, um, yes, the world was saved from the Manson cult, but in a way. Hollywood is also a cult, hmm. in a way. Not not even like that much jokingly, right? You have the scene at the Playboy Mansion where everybody's dancing hedonistically, and then at the end with this kind of like uh, induction, like one of us, welcome to the club, come yeah, it's, on it's up. It's good. Like it's so – the Playboy Mansion in this movie is so effing wholesome – Right. Like it's like it may as well be Esalen or something. It may as well be like a self-realization, you know, good vibes only kind of seminar as opposed to like a creepy misogynistic uh, uh, hellscape for the teenage girls who were kind of conscripted, conscripted into that. Right. Like how different are the Playboy bunnies from uh, the girls in the Manson family? Right. Like the the, they're, you know, probably underage. I mean, I guess they have to be like employed, so they have to like have a fake ID at least right like they're they're being exploited sexually they're uh surrounding a you know charismatic uh still at the time charismatic like leader figure but it has almost it has almost entirely a positive valence and no less a figure of american masculinity than steve mcqueen can sit there and talk about the one that got sharon tate the one that got away you know and how like well you know she went with this this uh a little brilliant Polish guy, and that's her type, and nothing I can do as Steve McQueen, the pinnacle of American manhood, but respect her wishes. You know, right, right. this is like it's 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 such BS, at least as far as, you know, um, as far as what we know about that actual milieu. But it it's important in the kind of the dichotomy and the doubling that it sets up. It sets up in the movie. So like Hollywood is is a cult. I get Hollywood is a religion. You know, Hollywood is a is a temple. Hollywood is a uh, has legitimacy. And the the Manson family is a cult. And it's it is I probably like telling that the Manson Manson family lives on a decrepit movie set, you know, for a kind of for a kind of movie that's still shot, but the but is is uh, you get the sense that they're on the wane and huh, on the wane, and you get yeah. the sense that um, also, I mean, I guess there are a lot of westerns made in this, but the westerns that are made, like the one with Timothy Oliphant, is the the young the new young hotness. By the way, Timothy Oliphant almost ten years older than Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, that that uh you know that he's being done up like a member of the Manson family like uh you know this is a this is a he's playing a uh uh, you know, villain g- g- guy, uh, Pancho Villa mustache, the um you know the but the coat has fringe and the hair is really really long and like he you know he could be he looks like tex actually uh in in the scene that that he does with method actor leanna mormont another phrase i can't take credit for that's a that's a uh, fenzelian coinage um through and through <laughs> who by the way uh like leanna mormont steals the scene 
Oh, it's a shame that Quentin Tarantino has racked up so many misogyny points in his movies that more women won't realize how awesome <laughs> that girl is in this movie. Oh, she's so right? good. She's so <laughs> you know, good. Like, she's so good. And she's is also so, so is also so uh, is disfigured by the system in uh, in a different way, right? Like there's no there's no reason an eight year old should be should be reading a biography of Walt Disney and like talking about method acting and you know how how she plays and like how she gets paid for her work like the the most real the the most age-appropriate thing she does in this movie is say yeah i play falling down all the time at home even when i'm not getting paid for it that is to say <laughs> like on my own time i act like a child you know yeah. like and i i do imaginative play rather than this kind of professional uh imaginative play that she is too way too adultified in um in in taking on right so it's it's interesting. So the flamethrower here is not so much the fantasy that all of us wish that would have happened in real life, because I don't think we all wish that the Manson family had been flamethrowered in maybe the same way that we all. And of course, I'm, you know, the idea of all is being is reductive here, but let's let that slide for a second. Uh, we all wish that that Hitler would get machine gun in the face. Right. Like uh, by 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 like vengeful Jewish Avengers. Right. Um, it's more a reflection of the violence uh, of the violence that we think is awesome. And this yearning in the sort of Hollywood religion that you're describing for vengeful for, for like awesome violence to solve problems and make things better, uh, which it doesn't do necessarily in real life. Um, but you know, that movie, the, the, the movie is not exist on a level where it's really, uh, giving a lot of credibility to people who would claim that you could separate the world from the violence that brings it into being. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily like, I mean, there is some, there are some moments that are like that in this movie. And maybe I should take that back and talk a little bit about actual, the portrayal of Sharon Tate in this movie, which is the sort of, that's the real opposition, right? Like, it's, we're not really wishing that Leonardo DiCaprio would fi- flamethrower the Manson family. We're mostly wishing in this movie that this woman that Ro- uh, Margot Robbie is playing had not been had like been allowed to continue to be dancing and beautiful all the time. Right. That she's there's this there's the sort of dancing that she does, uh, you know, the happiness in the movie theater. Now, there, there are a lot of uh, reviews of this movie that I saw that complain that Margot Robbie doesn't talk a lot in this movie. Uh, well, I get I get that complaint. I would also point out that the scenes where she doesn't talk speak volumes, the, the, the scenes where you just are supposed to watch her and, and take in what this means in terms of Hollywood and what Hollywood is supposed to stand for. You know, if there's anything that's good about what this whole thing is doing is. Is it not in the sort of the the opportunity of people who do everything right and who, by all accounts, seem to be fine people, generous, right, open-hearted, uh, nice, right? Uh, you know, she doesn't she doesn't come across as rude or mean to anybody. You know, she talks to the front of house people at the movie theater with the deference and respect. And yeah, she tries to get a free movie ticket out of it, but like you know, she still stands there with the guy, and and it's all and this, she has all this stuff, and, and it's just the, the the groove of her dancing and the joy in the movie theater. You know, that's what this is all supposed to be about. And I do think that on some level there's a question here that says if we elevate these cowboys that are capable of this sort of protective violence to this sort of great echelon of excellence as well as as alongside these kind of uh, earnest and well-meaning beautiful people, then when the chips are down, they should actually save these people, right? Like that, that, that when, when things are really going down, they should – somebody should protect Sharon Tate, and they didn't. But then there's this idea that, like, well, movies aren't real, right? Like, watching the movie and the world of the movie, uh, your brain can't help but put together a reality that's just moving pictures. It, it gets real – I think it gets real film theory. I think it gets real film school where it's like we get all these individual images and then we get these sort of, like, long, elongated, silent moments that are supposed to kind of reinforce the idea that the movies are an assembly of images. And, and then we – can't help but get sucked into the reality that they create. And so then we're not really in much of a position to say that it is all a lie um, because we buy into it. 
I think. Well, I think that that's, I, yeah. the, that's the Once Upon a Time aspect yeah, of that, right? Yeah. Like that not only the reference to, to Once Upon a Time in the West, which we should get into, because, uh, Pete, you got some great background on that that I, that I would love to kind of have read into the record, but that like uh, that this is going to be, this is self-consciously kind of a fairy tale, right? Like this is self-consciously uh, a, a fantastical recreation. And that, you know, I think that that's where the um, sort of the ending comes in. And that's like a little bit like the it it was i actually thought i didn't know the ending i didn't know that that we were going to not have the the manson murders so uh i thought you know with with sharon tate there it's like oh god she's it's a quentin tarantino movie she's gonna get eaten by a tiger no she's gonna right. <laughs> um <laughs> wife she, of five man still won't watch it my kids get eaten by that tiger i can guarantee it <laughs> she's she's going to get murdered at the end of this and that the scene in the movie theater was just cruel because that scene is like her taking pleasure in the fact that she's actually very good at this. Like yeah. she can do comedy and the people laugh. She can do, you know, uh, the cheesy martial arts moves that Bruce Lee taught her and the people clap for her, you know, like that she is good at the job of, you know, of what she is, you know, maybe not, uh, maybe she's not Lawrence Olivier, but like for, for what she's supposed to do, she does it with a plum and like that i thought like oh you're gonna like give her kind of an apotheosis before you know before you murder her you know and and uh like uh in in the most horrific way horrific way possible i i'm not totally convinced that what happens is better Pete, because mm. I'll I'll, yeah. I'll I'll see your point that Sharon Tate gets to uh, gets to to live on and dance on, but she doesn't get to live on forever. And I'll uh, I'll 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 see your point, but I'll raise you one Grecian urn and one in Flanders Fields, and uh, <laughs> you know. But I guess I guess the 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 films are the Grecian urn. Right, the the film the photography of the films that does not age even when the people uh, even when the people do age like I guess is the is the more happy love more happy happy love um, part of the the Grecian urn the forever wilt thou love and she be fair um, you know uh, uh, sentiment of of the Grecian urn and and the way that Al Pacino talks about talks in in this. Uh, this fetishistic way about the media that uh, said, we got it on 35 millimeter and then I got sent a kinescope of uh, this and that and like he, he and then we turned on I got uh, a 16 millimeter print of this or something like that like t- talks talking about these things not just as kind of notional not just as kind of um, uh, narrative you know intellectual notional spaces but as actual physical artifacts you know that have um that that have a a uh, quiddity to them mm-hmm. you know that have a thingness uh yeah. uh to them is is i think important on this and and just to to uh last point i'll say uh i did you guys manage to see this projected on film i saw it on 35 i wanted to go to the Cinerama dome which appears in the movie as they drive down hollywood boulevard where movie going is an event um <laughs> The uh, I wanted to go to the Cinerama Dome and see it on seventy millimeter, but uh, it was not. It was like sold out for I I think until like uh, Monday morning at three a.m. or something like that. The whole the whole weekend there was a Sunday midnight showing, and the Sunday midnight showing was between Saturday and Sunday. Was at the point <laughs> at which Saturday turns to Sunday. So Culver City, you can take your your BS parking sign and stuff it. Okay, I'm done. So to catch up one thing that you talked about, the quiddity of physical objects, right? And films as physical objects and the images and the ideas that we kind of live through the films not really being the same as the physical object that's represented in the film and the sort of levels of reality and unreality therein. This makes me think of the scene where Margot Robbie, when she's waiting to go to the movies, goes to the bookshop to pick up the book for Roman Polanski, Uh... right? And she confronts a little statuette that's on the table, right? And she, like, pats it on the head, I think, and kind of looks at the statuette with kind of a a moment of fondness and then goes on and talks about the book that she wants to get, right? 
but but you first of all, Matt, do you know uh, what that statuette was? And second of all, uh, do you know what it was? I just well, I I. <laughs> Uh, I didn't at the time. You told me okay. that it makes perfect. It makes perfect sense, but I did not clock it while I was watching the movie. So this is a very good catch from you. Did you watch? I think I'm right. I think I'm right. Right. I want to make sure because I might be wrong in this, but I think I'm right. Mark, did you catch it in the movie? Um, that 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 it was the Maltese Falcon. Yes, yes, yes. That that, that when she goes to the bookshelf, she like briefly regards the Maltese Falcon. I think the thought like passed in and out of my mind. Um, but when I came home and I saw that you had pointed that out, um, it, it totally clicked with me. I'm I'm 99 percent sure that's. The I, Maltese Falcon. I think that that's the Maltese Falcon. And furthermore, I think Leonardo DiCaprio owns a share of a, is like part of a purchasing group that owns a actual object that may be uh, the real Maltese Falcon. Uh, and that's sort of the underlying question, right? Is like, what is the real Maltese Falcon? And I wonder, it, the way that the Tarantino-verse works, it is my headcanon that that in all the mystery in the real world of what happened to the actual Maltese Falcon from the Humphrey Bogart movie, that in the Tarantino-verse, it ended up in that bookshop. That Sharon Tate, like, sees the actual Maltese Falcon. And, and then, and then... <laughs> It was in the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yes, that's what's in the briefcase. It's it, it's 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 a TARDIS. It's bigger on the inside. Uh, but but when I ask you what is it, it's the Maltese Falcon. What is it? It's the stuff that dreams are made of, right? That's the big line from the end of the Maltese Falcon. And Maltese Falcon, right? Is it's it's Marcellus Wallace's briefcase. Okay. The, the Maltese Falcon is the original, right? Go for it. Uh yeah, exactly. The the Maltese Falcon is is I think yeah, I think so. And that that's like that's just a little thing. By the way, um did you clock the the book that she gets for Roman Polanski in uh um in the thing, it's Tess of the Durbervilles. So it's oh. a uh, it's a, a fallen woman book. It's a, <laughs> you know, it's a woman who is, you know, seduced and and uh and sort of destroyed. Um Anyway, which is only uh, funny because it's it's dark and and sort of a commentary right on Roman Polanski being a horrible human being. <laughs> but anyway, sorry, sorry. Uh, I was thinking, I was actually thinking of like the Once Upon a Timeness. What, what came to mind actually, as as I was like um, thinking about what I wanted to say about that going into this, was. Uh, that once upon a time sort of it it absolves us uh to a certain extent of what we see because it's like oh this is going to be a fantasy this is about a representational space this is about sort of childhood play and i thought actually of and and now you you brought it full circle with humphrey bogart saying what dream the stuff that dreams are made of um i i thought at the time of once upon a time being uh akin to the kind of the epilogue in a renaissance play where the where someone a major character like like puck in midsummer night's dream where titania f's a donkey in uh <laughs> at the end says uh um if we shadows if we shadows have offended think but this and all has mended that you have but slumbered here while these visions did uh, appear and that's kind of like going to the movies right you kind of like you're in this dark room you're sort of cocooned in this chair a little bit like you're you're it, you could be kind of somnolent or or at least like you know, uh, uh, chill, right? And you're looking at the the screen, and you have this this dream that happens. And there's a body of film the- theory uh, that has to do with dreams and psychoanalysis and things like this. The other one, uh, famous one from Shakespeare, is Prospero saying, "Our revel, our revels now are ended. These are actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe." itself, yea, all which it inherit, shall dissolve, and, like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. There's one more mortality moment in this movie. It's it's kind of a, you kind of have to know where he's drawn. So if you take the 101, right, you, <laughs> yep. you get off at Barham. Barham, Barham uh, Boulevard, you will go past Forest Lawn Cemetery. And Brad Pitt makes this drive. Uh, he's driving in the valley and he's, he goes past the cemetery in the, th- in the, the, the car, in, in um, Leonardo DiCaprio's car. And you look out the window 
at him and it just sort of passes by in a flash but that he's he's going by row upon row upon row upon row of of tombstones and so there is i mean there is a sense of uh there is a sense of of kind of mortality in our little life being rounded with with a sleep and and you know i don't know the kind of waking waking from the dream but it when you wake from the dream that means it all uh, it all kind of disappears. It all goes away. I have one more thing about the end of the movie, but uh, but I can save it for a little later. So let's talk about Once Upon a Time in the West, shall we? Yeah, yeah, do you want to talk about that? Yes. So you, for those of us, those of you who might are not as necessarily familiar, there's a bunch of movies that have very similar titles to this movie that I can't imagine with the degree of self-referentiality that uh, Quentin Tarantino is employing and the other genres that he's worked in. I can't imagine these things are not on his mind. Uh, we won't go too much into Once Upon a Time in China starring Jet Li, which I'd imagine that Quentin Tarantino has definitely seen and has to have be influencing this movie in some way. But we can't talk about Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, which is the Western that Sergio Leone, Leone made, right? Sergio Leone is thought of now as this brilliant, brilliant director of Westerns, probably the director of the best Westerns, not the hotel, but the actual movies. And uh, whereas if you had asked at the time who was the best director of Westerns, people probably would have said like John Ford, right? But in retrospect, it's totally Sergio Leone because as the genre matured, Sergio Leone hooked up with Clint Eastwood and with a bunch of other actors and made these Western movies that really problematized the moral relationship between society and violence in a way that was not being problematized, uh, even in the sort of classic and post-classic Westerns that were being made in the United States. And so Sergio Leone's kind of bored of Westerns. He's made the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? He's pretty much said all he has to say, it seems. But then he signs on for one last ride, right? He's going to make Once Upon a Time in the West. And it's this. It's a very, very complexly uh, ref- self-referential movie where they— have scenes that are pulled from lots and lots and lots of other Westerns and that are kind of put into a blender and sort of spat out on screen this movie. There's a lot in the details around the movie that are references to other Westerns. But the one story about the movie that gets told the most, and I think we've even talked about this on the podcast before, is that Sergio Leone really wanted to pull a Ryan Johnson and subvert expectations. Uh, and so he hired to be his villain, right, uh, the tall, blue-eyed, uh, you know, sort of handsomely featured Peter Fonda, who is the kind of actor who would normally play the hero. And this is from a time and period who did, where... And who did play the hero in a lot of John Ford Westerns. Right, right, exactly, right. Um, also who appeared in Easy Rider, which is a whole another, oh, no, no, another no, no, angle Henry, of this. Henry yeah. Fonda, his dad. Oh, it's his dad. Oh, it's Henry Fonda. It's yeah. not Peter Fonda. It's Henry Fonda. You're right, you're right. Sorry, I was confusing Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda, Peter Fonda, and James Fonda is quite a triad to consider in the context of this movie. But sorry. So this is this is so Fonda is is has these blue eyes, right? And he's he's this kind of this is a time when the kind of character that you played is very much dictated by your build and what you look like. And I don't think that's necessarily not the case anymore, but I think it was even more the case then. And so there's this really famous scene where these bandits come up, well, they're not bandits, you find out later, but they come up to a fake Irish family, which is basically an Italian family wearing red wigs or having like red hair that, that looks very out of place, who are trying to homestead in, in the West uh, in an area that they want to uh, they want to build a railroad and there's all sorts of conflicts going on. But there's this scene where the, the family gets murdered by these ruffians who ride up and the last person left alive is this little boy, like this 10-year-old boy, and uh, the meanest of the mean bad guys comes up and and the camera kind of pans up and you see that it's, you know, now I now I now I'm panicking and I don't know which Fonda it is. Is it it's Henry gonna, Fonda. It's Henry Fonda. It pans up and it shows Henry Fonda, which is a shocking moment for people who are familiar with his other role in Westerns and probably kind of confusing for people who aren't. And he straight up murders this child, right? Like, which is like huge right like imagine i mean imagine a similar sort of movie would be like chris evans is in a movie and he shows up and at the beginning he's like being nice to everybody right and then at the beginning of the movie he just murders a child it's like yeah that's shocking right and kind of the idea is to um make him extra scary because he's extra alienating and he's this unknowable thing and so when uh charles bronson has to fight him a.k.a. harmonica in the deconstructive way, right? There's a real menace to him that's kind of new and exciting. And, and one of my contentions in looking in this movie is that Brad Pitt's character 
in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is based somewhat off of the impetus that created Henry Fonda's character in Once Upon a Time in the West. And that you take this guy who's like chiseled and handsome and he plays the leading man so much. And first of all, you put him in a role where he's you think that the way this expectation is going to be frustrated is he's putting put in the role where he's not the leading man, where he's just the schlub. He can't make it in the movie business. He's just a stuntman. And you think the thing that's going to be unheroic about him is that he's like a working class guy, whereas Leonardo DiCaprio is a fancy actor. But what you really find out is the thing that's unheroic about him is his gruesome penchant for brutality. Right. Just just this uh, this utter just like when he's at the Manson family ranch. Right. And the and the and the. The Schwing Ranch or whatever it is, uh, you know, and he's and there's and he's walking around. There's all this menace, right, because you don't know whether he's going to get killed or not. And you get really scared for him. And he's being the real cowboy standing out there in the dust, you know, confronting all of them and not moving. And it ends with him going back to the car and just just brutalizing this poor shirtless, you know, wanderer nonsense guy who, you know, I mean, yeah, sure, he's probably uh, aspiring to be a serial killer, but really he just looks like somebody who's in desperate need who Charles Manson happens to have under his tent, right, and is not taken care of. And the way he just bashes his face in against, you know, and he bloodies him up and, like, demeans him and, like, even throws him the tools which he could conceivably use as a weapon, but he knows the guy is so weak that there's no way he could possibly fight back, right? And there's no way that any of them could possibly fight back. So you go from this point where they're the strong ones and he's the weak one and you're scared that he's going to be murdered to him being a real bully. Right. And, and a real heel. It's a real heel turn in that scene, I think. Um, and, and, and I think that it plays further with the expectation of whether you think this character is supposed to be a good guy or not, because this character can't exist. Out, you can't put Brad Pitt in a movie without posing the question of whether he's the good guy or not. Uh, and he's been in movies where he's been bad guy and he's been in movies where he's been the good guy. But he always poses that question. Am I the good guy or not? Because because you can't not know just because of the way he looks. He's too handsome. Right. And, and so there's that wonderful, similar sort of scene, um, the scene where he arguably kills his wife. Right. Where he's on the boat with his wife. And I love how they just cut to black rather than show you what happens because every audience member is visualizing what happened next. Right. They cut away. I don't know if they cut to black, but they cut away. Right. They cut back. And there's this idea of like, do you think this Brad Pitt character is a hero or do you think that he's is horribly brutal villain? And what you think he did to his wife is more reflective of you than it is certainly of Brad Pitt, because Brad Pitt is an actor and he's none of this is real. Right. But 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 it, but it is about Brad Pitt, because Al Pacino is telling you, like the the audience is watching the actor and has opinions about the actor. We often talk on the Overthinking It podcast about characters using the name of the actor because we watch so many movies that we forget the names of all the characters and we would rather not constantly correct ourselves if possible. But also because we all know that we're watching the actor. We all know that these actors have this layer on top of their identity, which is the thing that we see on screen that plays all these parts like we root for keanu reeves right we don't care about neo i don't care what happens to neo i want keanu reeves to not be killed by hugo weaving right is is the one is he the one yeah no totally (laughs) totally totally we all know that lena dunham is creepy and so the you know (laughs) the meta casting of making her the dead mother in the the, she she revels in it too right she just revels in that part oh i don't know they're also i mean that scene is great those those women are fantastic just really the whole creepy thing dakota fanning is in that scene too right yeah that's that's you say we all know lena dunham is creepy but dakota fanning is creepier than lena dunham in this movie and she's (laughs) she's headed she's playing squeaky from she's she's gonna go kill she has a uh future killing gerald ford i mean Maybe this is a movie where a, an attempt was not made on the attempt of the, was not made on the life of Gerald Ford, and he went on to win a second term. Maybe you know. <laughs> In the Tarantino verse, there are big differences in history, and there are small differences in history. Gerald Ford was eaten by wolves this afternoon. <laughs> he was delicious. Now I'm not going to say that he was delicious. Well, you think he, the President of the United States tastes bad? <laughs> Sorry, and I don't know if that's too deep of a cut. A little, a little Dana Carvey action. Before, uh, before we get back to the rest of uh, the Once Upon yeah. a Time in the West thing, I do want to point out that, like, although yes, Brad Pitt's character like does a heel turn at the end, he, you can also read his arc as a pretty typical Western uh, hero, 
Uh, right. We talk about this a lot in the podcast, right? You know, he lives at the outskirts of society, like literally, you know, in the far stretches of, of, of Los Angeles. Um, he is capable of the violence that society needs in order to maintain order. Um, and at the end, when uh, Rick Dalton gets married, right, there's no room for him in that domestic situation. Uh, and at the end, uh, even after he saves everyone, he rides off into the sunset. Yeah, he's, he's, of, not, yeah. he's not not a Western hero. He's taken away. He's taken away in an ambulance. And I, you know, I, I, uh, I tell and retell on this podcast the story of the end of of John Ford's My Darling Clementine, which is his retelling of the Wyatt, Wyatt Earp story. That um, in the in the end of that movie, Henry Fonda rides off into the sunset, having done the things, having done the the violence that the society depends on, but which you know makes him unfit to kind of live as a member of the society. And the camera um, stays put in. T- with Clementine uh, and you know the woman who represents domesticity and civilization coming to this frontier, and so the uh, which you know is is a lie, but but it's the the lie that the, that they were they were working with, right? And so where the camera is, what you see, and who uh, you know, and who stays and who goes, these are important things at the end of a movie. And and you're right to call out um, him, Brad Brad Pitt, getting kind of pulled away into. Uh, uh, you know, into the back of the ambulance and being driven away while we stay up in the up in the hills with Leonardo DiCaprio. But then at the end, when he has this kind of otherworldly, like disembodied conversation with Sharon Tate through the intercom and goes in to her house, what happens to the camera? Right. Like we see we see him go in. We don't go in. We're not part of that. We uh, stay looking down uh, on this driveway with two cars in it, and uh, we're outside the house, and we're 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 looking at cars, you know, which is like an important LA thing in car culture, and like you can come to the party, but then you have to get away from the party again. And Edith Wharton said that Edith Wharton wrote in The Age of Innocence that Americans are uh, as her as much in a hurry to escape entertainment as they are to get rid of it. So like the the row of horse drawn carriages outside the Academy of Music at the end of the opera is as important as the you know the arrivals and who sees who. Uh, in who sees whom in the boxes and things like that. The other thing is that it's a reference to Taxi Driver and that the the that last scene of of Taxi Driver where um, the the kind of shot that the tracking shot that looks down on the apartment and all the the kind of aftermath of of what happened what happened there. Um, the the remark about that that was made by a uh, film theory teacher or a film history teacher I should say is that he turns the he turns the real location because it was shot in a real location into a movie set by doing that by kind of tracking through it and looking looking down at it as though there were no ceiling you know um, and here it's this same thing we end up like above the thing looking down it turns the turns the real life location into a movie set and uh so there's a lot i mean there's a lot going on um there's a lot going on at the end and one one of the things is sort of civil you know violence being contained by the civilization but kind of expelled from it uh he doesn't have to leave town though he has to like go get stitched up because he's been sort of domesticated like the dog um right you know he's not uh he hasn't he he's not he hasn't come back from he's a little more uh, individuated or is a little more like real fully realized than Don Draper is who is like the man in the gray flannel suit but uh, you know but then has like a crisis about it cuz he's actually not the man in the gray flannel suit he's a, he's a human being but um he's still you know he needs to be kind of he needs to be kind of taken away he needs to be contained um and he needs to go back to the outskirts of town where he lives in a trailer behind a drive-in movie theater yeah. <laughs> I love I love when you're talking about that. For for me, the My Darling Clementine shot is the searcher's shot with John Wayne outside of the threshold of the house yeah. looking in and unable to cross it. Same concept, right? Is that it but same kind well, similar concept articulated in a more kind of straightforward way. Uh, using the tools of cinema, maybe a little bit less uh, kind of self-consciously, but still the idea is that 
the violent element is outside of the house and the family is inside of the house and you're on the inside of the house with the family. You are not on the outside of the house with the violent element. And one of the and when you, if you think about this real tradition in Western cinema, which Quentin Tarantino was certainly aware of. Right. It is hilarious that you have a double. Right. You have a character who exists in two personalities, the personality that is the like. Uh, oh, I'm trying to make things work. I kind of want to get married. And how do I do I have to go back to Missouri? And I, I don't know how to deal with my feelings. And and I'm trying to make it work and with my profession. And and I'm really I'm trying to make like I'm buying real estate, the real the real homesteader of a person. Uh, and he has this double, which is this emotionally detached, borderline sociopathic, tremendously violent presence. And they're mirrors of each other. And this is a movie where for the entirety of the time, the person who's supposed to be on the inside goes to a cowboy town and says that the Henry Fonda John Wayne character should stay inside his house, <laughs> right? Like, like they flip that that uh, that, and even at the end, Leonardo DiCaprio is the one outside the house, and and Brad Pitt is inside the house. And in the moment where the Manson family breaks into the house, you know that something has gone terribly wrong for them, and because that's not where he's supposed. to to be yeah. he's the outside guy right but now he's inside and that represents and that's in certain ways associated with the way that violence comes into all of our houses through entertainment right which i described before is not really the sort of it's not strictly blaming violence for it i mean he's real word violence he's like korean war violence right he is like ptsd you know actually shooting people uh murdering innocent people and civilians violence and he is in the house because he looks like the handsome cowboy and, and so it's, a, it's and then I guess what happens at the end of the movie is that the inversion gets corrected, except we don't end up in the house. We end up out in the driveway <laughs> and we don't get to participate in it anymore. There you go. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, and on that, I want to draw a line back to Inglorious Bastards and the scene of uh, when we, the audience, are watching Nation's Pride, the Nazi propaganda film, <laughs> along with the Nazis in the audience and yeah. like are just reveling at the brutality and like the utter just like evisceration of, of human life on screen. Right. Good stuff. I, I mean, this has precedent. I think the char- the person that Quentin Tarantino seems most fascinated with in real life that has come up in multiple movies in this context is Audie Murphy, uh, who gets name checked in this in this because uh, Leonardo DiCaprio calls Brad Pitt Audie Murphy as a joke, right? And and, and Audie Murphy is a uh, like a farm boy who went to war and won the Medal of Honor for killing a whole lot of people, right? And uh, But he looks like a real kind of baby-faced, boy-next-door kind of type. But he killed a bunch of Germans, right? Um, and you know, he's from, he's from Texas, right? He's a sharecropper. He was born poor. He goes to Europe and murders a whole bunch of people. I mean, again, they deserved it. <laughs> or maybe the, they didn't, those were, right? Those, those weren't people, Pete. Those were Nazis. Those, yeah, exactly, right? And there you go, right? That's the Inglorious Bastards right there. And then he comes back and he has PTSD pretty bad, but he gets in the movies, right? Like, and he, and he plays a war hero in a whole bunch of movies. And it's so surreal. The idea that Hollywood actually took this guy who went through this actual thing and put him in these sort of tangentially related fantasies. And a lot of the stuff he does isn't really just war movies. Uh, and I, I tend to think of the story of Inglorious Bastards sort of being like a version of Red Sun, except Audie Murphy is a Nazi as opposed to Superman being a Soviet. Right. It's like, well, what if what if it was the Soviet? What was the Nazis that were really successful at converting their soldiers post-war into movie actors as opposed to the United States? Um, but then this idea that Brad Pitt in kind of being the violent element in real life, you know, real, real life, who then is brought back and then, you know, he's played by a movie actor. He's associated with the movie actor. Uh, I don't know. It just it just seems like there's something about this weird situation with Audie Murphy that really fascinates Quentin Tarantino that maybe he'll keep making movies about, <laughs> I guess. Well, we, but, can, yeah. we can we can only hope this has just been a, uh, a little uh, dip of our toe into the pool. Oh. Uh, where Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> listens to his lines and, and and we didn't even talk about Leonardo DiCaprio in this movie no, at all. It's not. Yeah, when you put when you put uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in a, in a movie, um, did, you know, no less doing the best acting I've ever seen. Uh, like uh, you got to talk about it. Maybe maybe we'll uh, come back to this movie next week. But wait, no, next week, The Rock <laughs> has come back to Samoa. <laughs> Woohoo! 
um, we're, we're gonna, I, I feel pretty comfortable calling our shot that we are going to uh, do Hobbs and Shaw next week, the, the latest entry in the Fastiverse. So uh, you, you have your, your uh, homework from uh, The Fast and the Furious to The Fate of the Furious. Go, go rewatch all of those movies. If you do one, for, one a day, you'll almost make it by the time, uh, by the time that uh, our podcast on Hobbs and Shaw drops. Thanks very much for listening. And thanks to Pete and Mark for uh, podcasting with me. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. In a way, isn't this podcast also like a cult? Hi, I'm Matt Rather. When I vape, I vape with dosist pens. They give a cool, refreshing 2.25 milligrams of THC with all the cannabinoids and terpenes you need to maintain your optimal wellness. So be like me. It's the one that vibrates. I actually probably, someone's going to think we're actually doing a commercial. It's actually sponsored. Hi. This is Batman. If you want to get a color television set, make sure that you email christian.bail at gmail.com and ask him, say that you like Batman and that you want a television set. Hi, this is Javi Feierstein. If you want a color rainbow flag... Uh, make one yourself. You gotta sew it. I don't know. I'm, I don't do e-commerce. I'm a brilliant writer. <laughs>